0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of The New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bears Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, Or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it.
1: Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret. It's think about it, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Bear. What indeed can we learn from a book? Khalil Gibran's 1923 *The Prophet* seems like a deceptively simple book, but it contains a radical insight. Of what can I speak, save of that which is even now moving in your souls? Al-Mustafa, the prophet invented by Gibran, asks the people of the fictional and timeless city of Orphalese, what can a book teach us that we cannot know ourselves? To detect and activate this thing inside of us, which William Blake had called poetic genius, Walt Whitman dubbed the luminousness of real vision, Emily Dickinson called the dark, Freud, the unconscious, and Rainer Maria Rilke, love, and Gibran called simply life, we must break through conventions, our general flight into social habits, religious and political doctrine, the comforting approval of others, and the various inherited truisms and clichés we take for wisdom. And even once we realize that something is moving in our souls, Gibran warns us, we tend to repress this insight by submitting to outside authorities, to give it a name, a label, a theory. By turning to religion or other people's teachings, we are in fact dodging the challenge of taking charge of our own conditions, and thus of our freedom. But this is crucial, Gibran does not want to become himself yet another authority, does not want to be the author of yet another book that either lies on your shelf gathering dust or provides some means of self-escape. What is word knowledge but a shadow of wordless knowledge, he admonishes. I talked to Glenn Wallace, an expert on Buddhist philosophy, religion, and thinking, the author of a new translation of the Dhammapada and the Life of the Buddha, and a critique of Western Buddhism. Glenn had picked up the prophet when he was 16, and it had changed his life. He embarked on a career that was devoted to thinking critically about spiritual matters. And then he returned to this book after I prompted him several times and rediscovered the prophet for himself today. The conversation concerns the way in which we come back to things that had once moved us deeply and why we maybe should not dismiss our original adolescent turns and twists on the road to becoming who we really want to be. Welcome to Think About It. I'm really happy to be speaking today with Glenn Wallace. So first of all, Glenn, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
2: Well, thanks for asking me to be
1: here. So today we'll talk about Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. I want to start us out pointing out, so Gibran was born in 1883, and as a 12-year-old boy comes to America, like many people, very poor immigrant, settles with his mother They're originally from today's Lebanon, in Boston, in a very poor area. And then in 1923, he publishes a book called The Prophet, which becomes incredibly successful in America and then around the world. It's reputed to be one of the best-selling books of the 20th century. And in that book, he says something that I want to start us out with. In a section on teaching, he says, If he is indeed wise he does not bid you enter the house of his wisdom, but rather leads you to the threshold of your own mind. And I wonder whether the success of the prophet has something to do with that the book leads us to the promise or the idea of reaching beyond ourselves, but it doesn't really do that work for us, but leads just what he says to the threshold of our own minds. Yeah, it's interesting you started with that. What do they call them? Chapters? or Yeah, little prose poems teaching. or something. Or chapters.
2: We'll, we'll call it that particular teaching because that was stuck out uh, really to me probably more than any of them because that's something I'm thinking a lot about right now. Just what it is it to teach? What is it to be in relationship to a learner or a student? I think that's a good point you make that at least my own attraction to the text when I look back to it was as a very young man who was very disillusioned with learning and with the educational system that I found myself in, and who actually was on the verge of exiting that educational system, largely because I was surrounded by the kinds of teachers that Khalil Gibran is kind of dissuading us from being. And I think I was very attracted as a young man, me and my friends as well, with that very notion that, that there's something fundamentally wrong with our educational system. And what is fundamentally wrong with it is that we're surrounded by these overbearing sort of, you know, master teachers who are telling us how it is. So that particular aspect of the prophet resonated with me at the very beginning. And I'll just add very quickly that the school I landed in, which was a so-called free school, always had a copy of The Prophet lying around. And it was a really important book to me and my other 14 students who left the mainstream educational system. That is actually what got me interested in this book in the first place, is the role it played in my life as a young man trying to figure things out.
1: And do you remember reading this book, how it impacted you or what you made of it at that point? Well,
2: I have renewed my memory of that since you've invited me to come talk about the book with you. And I've been given a lot of thought to what it was that really, affected me, to touch me. I mean, it was an important book for me and my friends when we were young. And let me just add quickly, part of what's interesting about this conversation we're going to have is that it became not only an unimportant book for me in later life, but almost kind of a ridiculous book. And so when you asked me to come talk about it, I was like, no, I don't want to talk about that. I don't think I have anything interesting to say about that book or anything good to say about that book. Let me go have a look at the book. And then and then I very slowly had my memory aroused about, it's kind of an emotional memory aroused about the value of the book. So that's really what brings me here today, is kind of this strange relationship I've had with the prophet and this business of reflecting on what that was about.
1: It's actually nice that rereading a book can actually bring us back to who we were. And part of what the prophet is, is a book about this prophet who's been in a town for 12 years, in a strange way, both reviled and beloved. They all seem very eager to listen to him, but he hasn't been treated very well, really. And he felt kind of an exile from the people there. He wants to go back to his people. The ship comes in and then he's giving wisdom. But at the end of the book says, I didn't give you anything. I can't teach you anything. There's nothing I imparted. All I did is I learned from you and you treated me. They did not treat him well. So in some ways, you returning to this book earlier, once it was meaningful, then you said you didn't just forget about it. You actually actively worked against it and said, this is ridiculous or this is an an empty promise. In some
2: strange way, though, my moving away from it would have been predicted by Al-Mustafa, the master or whatever. In other words, the strange thing is, as I might have come to treat it with condescension like every discipline in academia, literature, philosophy, English, whatever, I actually, if I look back and when I started to reread it, I started to realize, you know, I, I've been living these ideas. So what's really? my problem with the text actually? And that's something I have actually very interested in exploring with you is, is, you know, why did we come to these views of the text? What, you know, what is the university, if not a place to explore a vast range of ideas and literature, but why do certain things get treated with condescension and exiled from academic discourse, which is very much you know, the place of important conversations in our society. And why my own capitulation is some of that in my own life to a text that was obviously very, very important to me as a young man and to my friends, because you read this in community. And it was even a very important part of the formation of this radical free school I went to, which is interesting, because if the text is so trite and corny, we have to ask the question, what did these hippies, what do new agers, and what did my fellow free schoolers see in it, people who were very, very interested in, or let's say have deep ambivalence towards mainstream capitalist values and who are interested in finding alternative ways of living, somehow this book resonated with them. Why is it?
1: And this is interesting what you're saying. It formed a practice and it informed your way of living. And one of the big questions I think a book like this raises is it's been not just rejected, but utterly blanketed with silence in the academy by mainstream people, critics. The only reference I really found is the great critic Harold Bloom Uh included in one book which is American religious poems. But in the Norton anthology of American literature, it is nowhere to be found. I mean, you have everybody. You have Marianne Moore, you have Pound, you have Eliot, you have Edna St. Vincent Millay, you have Claude McKay, you have Suzanne Gaskell. You have people that I have not read, but you do not have Khalil Gibran. He doesn't register. But it informed, as you said, your practice. And it informed another way of thinking of what teaching and what knowledge and what wisdom to raise this word could be. But at the same time, one of the questions it raises: does it produce an alternative that's sustainable or does it ultimately lead back to an accommodation? Is it a form of resistance? And I would be curious, the school you bring up, Mm -hmm. what does a free school try to do?
2: Well, that's a very interesting question. Maybe just first say, it figures Harold Bloom would include it.
1: The only one. (laughs) And he calls it religious poems, but then otherwise I think he moves on as well. Well, well,
2: I mean, and that's another teaching of Al-Mustafa, or the prophet, is speak to us of religion. He's like, what the hell do you think I've been talking about the whole time? Right. I'm talking about houses and food and clothing and love and marriage. If that's not religion, and if religion is not something that's deeply embodied and lived every moment of your life, then I don't know what we're talking about. So, Emerson, the great religious figure, it figures it's interesting that that Bloom would include this text in there. Maybe it does resonate in many ways with Emersonian thought or Thoreau, it brings us to this tradition of American, I say this word cautiously, let's just call it libertarian socialism, an idea in America that, well, to answer your question in terms of the school I went to, which I think is part of that tradition I just mentioned, is and we can explore why The Prophet, My Fitness, is that it was interested in non-hierarchical, non-coercive, interest-driven, student-driven forms of being, forms of learning. It drew its inspiration and its ethics from, as ridiculous as it sounds, the anarchist tradition, which is really a libertarian socialist tradition. The libertarian means that our main goal is to find ways to be free as individuals, to realize you know, who we are and what we want to do and how we might go about doing that, but doing that in community. So the socialist in that sense. And I think a lot of what, that's an interesting question is, and I've been thinking about this as well, is does the profit extrapolate to kind of libertarian socialist political formation? My quick answer would be yes. It'd be something we'd have to discover and discuss a little bit to figure out. But I think that that might be part of the reason why that book was lying around in what's called Our New School, right? There was some sense, the teachers or whoever put it there, and we all continued to read it and discuss it, was that there were values in there that were consistent with the values of the school, which were, like I said, non-hierarchical, egalitarian, this idea that leadership should never be institutionalized. It arises in any given situation. Another important theme there that we find in Gibran is this idea that, you know, the word we would always use was bourgeois society always wants to cut off what's allowable and fix it. We might have a you know, vast continuum of what counts as being a human being, but society always wants to limit that. And Gibran will say, libertarian socialist thought will say, no, we need to open that up and include what actually is the case. And that's a theme that comes out over and over again in Gibran is, you know, don't think, you know, that the acceptable norm of whatever it is, love or pleasure, is all there is. Well, if we look at it in reality, there's a lot more to that. It's just not permitted in the reigning ideology and so forth.
1: And he offers something like a critique of ideology, a deconstruction of the ideas that form laws and orders and freedom, love, marriage. A lot of it is. He takes a convention and people ask him about the most banal everyday quotidian things, a house, eating, speaking, selling and buying. So he covers aspects of human existence that a lot of times philosophy also glosses over and doesn't really engage with because it's dealing with deeper issues. To get back to this one part where you said this idea of a school that will liberate us from the shackles of bourgeois society that will somehow be non-hierarchical in the sense of it's not the teacher telling us there is the truth because gibran says say not not, I
3: i have found the truth but rather i have found a truth if he is indeed wise he does not you bid enter the house of his wisdom but rather leads you to the threshold of your own mind That's a
1: very uncomfortable thing in a school. If every student has his or her own truth, doesn't this amount to some heedless relativism and we all just believe whatever we want? It's strange to find that in a book that is such a spiritual guide for so many people. And then another reference I want to bring up, which where he talks about freedom, where he warns us that the desire for freedom can become another harness for you. And he says,
3: And my heart bled within me, for you can only be free when even the desire of seeking freedom becomes a harness to you. And when you cease to speak of freedom as a goal and a fulfillment.
1: Right. So searching yep. for freedom that any, let's say, political ideology that promises you release from yep. the shackles of society, he says, that's another trap. Yeah, so You're just attached right. to that ideology. So the right. book sort of opens itself yes. up to say, I'm going to give you this, these guidelines how to live, but then don't right. get too attached to them. Don't get right. attached to me as right. a teacher. Don't get too attached to the words I'm saying to you. Don't get attached to this this premise that you have within you, your own means of your salvation.
2: Right. yes. There's very much a deep realism operating in that text, I think, that... Yeah, so what is freedom really? Okay, so there's the desire of the individual to be free on the one hand, but there's all the fellows around them, the society around them. So let's get real about this and think about how we attain this desire, this goal of freedom in relationship to other people. And the answer, in a way, is sort of a constant rhetoric of impossibility. We have this, and the way he talks about love is incredible, I think, because it starts off like, you know, love is first it's going to beckon you, then it will enfold you, but then you know, there's a sword hidden in its pinions and it's going to wound you and eventually it's going to crucify you. And yet you must love, right? It's not going to be possible. It's not going to be attainable. The same thing with you said about relativism. Yeah, we all seek for some sort of individual truth based on our perspective in life. And yet we're going to have to find ways to defend that in relationship to others. It's not anything goes. There's an impossibility I think, just constantly humming throughout this text that points to me to a deep kind of realism.
1: And it's interesting you call it realism, this impossibility. In a lot of your other work, you've talked about this promise of emptiness, of self-negation. You've talked in some of your other work on Buddhist thought, on Western Buddhist thought, on the difference of an emptiness that is infinity and abundance or an emptiness that's nullity and that's annihilation. Yes. And you say Western Buddhism takes... The former, the emptiness as abundance, we contain the oceans, the world, the universe, right. the cosmos. And yes. it dies away from the other realization that yes. emptiness is also negation, well, annihilation, Yes, the end of everything.
2: Right. And I call that a kind of, it's a kind of flinching that Buddhism does. It presents us with, and this relates very much to this text, The Prophet, too. I think Gibran does something similar. They both, they present to us a kind of human real. You know, something that is deeply, deeply embedded in the imperatives of us homo sapiens apes. You know, our biology, the fact of death, the impossibility of, seeming impossibility of harmonizing diverse perspectives and desires in a society. But yet these imperatives, they're deep and they also start prefiguring our ideologies, our worldviews. So Buddhism takes one of them, which is arguably something like Emptiness the fact of emptiness and nothing ultimately is underlain by anything substantial and eternal. That's what gives rise to the world as it is and the possibility of change and so forth. And yet it flinches from that realization, that articulation of that human real and wants to say, well, realization of this brings not what emptiness actually brings, which is, you know, eventual decay and disappearance of a thing, but it brings some sort of deep joy." you know, deep, lasting joy of some sort. I think Gibran wants to prevent that move. In some sense, I read this text in the last couple of days, a somewhat almost, in American terms, almost pessimistic text.
1: Well, at at the beginning of the text, so Al-Mustafa, the Chosen and the Beloved, it's very positive. He's kind of a saintly, the prophet himself. He says on the first page of the book, he says, Long were the days of pain I have spent within its walls, and long were the nights of aloneness. And who can depart from his pain and his aloneness without regret? This is very different from what usually the promise of practice meditation, Western Buddhism, spiritual literature has. You pick up this book, you give it to somebody, you say, this will console you. And he says, who can leave his pain and his aloneness without regret? That's really counterintuitive because the promise of most of spiritual literature is to actually leave pain and aloneness behind. Right.
2: Yes. I wonder if... Something we intuited as young people was that this text refuses to make that move, to kind of try to sell us this bill of goods, that eventually it's all going to turn out all right and it's all going to be fine Good, if We could only follow the prescriptions. It doesn't do that, this text. It's in American terms, again, a pessimistic text It refuses to...
1: Right, and pessimistic, which in America we like to not acknowledge, which is interesting. I think this book is really an important book for America, which, if you say this is published in 1923, I would think this is a text for secular people who are not attached to one religion or another, who are also skeptical about the promise of science and a kind of materialism that promises new laws, new, greater, transcendent knowledge, and they have to muddle through on their own. So what you're saying sort of suddenly I give you another quote where he talks about religion and he warns against the idea of transcendence that exceeds the human. He says, for in reverie, you cannot rise above your achievements, nor fall lower than your failures and take with you all men for an adoration. You cannot fly higher than their hopes, nor humble yourself lower than their yeah. despair. <laughs> in some ways, he maps all this book onto human existence. Yes. Nothing beyond. Right. Nothing before, nothing yes. outside of it. Yes. So you have worked a lot on this that yeah. there is this longing and this craving for transcendence, for meaning, for something beyond ourselves that will direct us.
2: Yes. It's very interesting to bring up that point because I was just looking over some of the teachings again this morning, and that was precisely the point that hit me was there's something about the language, you know, and the imagery, you know, when when you work, you lose heart, the whispering of the hours turns to music. That seems, it suggests it's going to take you above the ether, into the atmosphere, into the heavens, far away from the earth, but it doesn't. It is continually turning back to here and now, this thing, presence. It's amazing. It strikes me in my current reading as a profoundly imminent text, a text that insists on imminence, ironically, even though the whole reading of it suggests the style of it, the aesthetics of it suggests
1: it's going to do exactly the opposite and suggests a kind of transcendence. And it never does that. It's In the section, he goes from the first question is about love and then Amitra, who is the woman who questions him first, she's a seeress, a prophetess herself. She asks about marriage and he takes away this hope that we would in love find something greater than ourselves, which other poets, not spiritual writers, have actually posited a lot. And so he says, in marriage, you were born together, and together you shall be forevermore. But let there be spaces in your togetherness, yes. and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. This right. is read at countless weddings for the last 100 years, or yes. 95 years. <laughs> it's a surprising thing to say to people who are joining yeah. in union, to in matrimony, to say, let the winds of heaven dance between the leaves some room. Fill each other's cup, but drink not from one but cup. one
2: cup. You wonder sometimes, if the people even know? I sometimes wonder if people, they just hear the language and they're assuming it's saying something very lovely. Well, I think
1: most people getting married they don't pay attention to what's being read. They're well, so anxious and nervous and excited at this point. Yeah,
2: and I think that might be actually part of this subversive nature of the text. It's like this overabundance of flowery, romantic language, but delivering a very barbed message. I mean, fill each other's cup, but drink not from one cup. And the oak tree and the cypress grow not in each other's shadow. I mean, that's incredible. So you have
1: to leave space. He says, sing and dance together and be joyous, but let each one of you be alone. Yes. This reminds me, as you know, in Rilke's letters to a young poet, he said, two people should guard one another's solitude. Yes. Shibran, which is in 1923, which is surprising to me, the same, the next sentence, even as the spring of a lute are lone, though they quiver with the same music. Yes. There's yes. this hint of a cosmic harmony. Yes. Rilke has in one of his poems, the love song, he says, we are two strings taught on the same instrument. Yes. And chime into the same music, but we're separate strings.
2: Right. But To me, and I agree, it suggests something like a unity of being or a cosmic harmony, but not with some ultimately lovely payoff included in that cosmic harmony is the reality of, of pain and aloneness and suffering and death, et cetera, et cetera. He's including that in it. It's not like a, some sort of ultimate transcendence of, you know, the negative in the cosmic harmony in Jabot. And it's interesting, Walker came to mind in reading this stuff again, and so did Nietzsche, Zarathustra. But I want to be careful not to somehow say, and you suggested so much in an earlier conversation, that the value of it, we don't want to say that the value of it lies in the fact that it's like, like there's like Hegel, like he wants to reconcile dichotomies like Hegel, but that's not what makes it an interesting text. So we have to be careful there. So it's its say something
1: about that, it's yeah. interesting. It's not that he just says, oh, there's pain and there's joy and they're close together. He said, it is your board and your bed. At some section in the text, he says, there's okay. joy and sorrow. When you are awake and feel joy, sorrow is asleep in your bed. And then you go to sleep and joy is awake. Yeah. But it doesn't mean this this promise of a Hegelian reconciliation. No, so this, right. it's, it's not yeah. quite there.
2: Right. In fact, if the one word is somehow disappear and some sort of negation, well, then that would be the end of the other thing as well.
1: We would actually lose everything, everything, everything is not a totality for him.
2: Yes, and there is no ultimate reconciliation of these opposites of dichotomies or whatever. They are of each other, and it's a lesson to me. Again, I'm always reflecting on what touched me as a young man, and there was something in there about... I read it as an American, of course, during the Cold War, and this was in the 1970s, and there was something of just a refusal to accept the sort of the lie of the optimistic or ever progressing positivity of American ideology of the time, and part of it was very much this idea that, you know, it sounds trite to say it, but there's a deep truth in it, that there's pain involved in pleasure, and pleasure is not some sort of ultimate fruit that contains no pain in it. It is very much, you know, the intermixture of these things. Again, I'm always tempted to say, and that sounds like Hans, you know, jouissance. I don't want to do that. Right, 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 right.
1: But it's interesting reading it in the seventies, the book became bestseller and it had this huge peak and it still continues to do so in the sixties, actually John F. Kennedy and the Beatles both read it. But the question is whether when you read it first, it sort of touched a nerve with you and your friends. It informed your life. But then it seems like you forgot about it actively, which is interesting yes. that we do active acts of forgetting. Yes. And I wonder whether you forgot the part that actually he's not as soporific, going to this <laughs> comatose Buddhist idea that yes. life is just, you just can retreat from. The difficulty of society by stilling your mind and by stilling your mind, you find some inner harmony and peace. And then right. you don't have to worry about anything else, which is a kind of acquiescence. Yes. Yes. I
2: somehow had this idea on um, reflecting on this, that me and my friends somehow belong to the latter days of classical romanticism. <laughs> and that's part of the explanation. I mean, there's some very romantic You know, in the literary sense and also philosophically going on in The Prophet, I think. That's something we could explore. But, you know, we were interested in, you know, emotional honesty and, you know, we were interested in cultivating the imagination we're interested in being original. That was always our big struggle. How do you create something original? We're interested in spontaneity. We're interested in the cultivation of the inner self. All these very romantic things. You know, We, we were not embarrassed to say we are seekers
1: who were interested in truth and beauty. You mean romantic with a capital R as in I Keats mean, and Shelley <laughs> yeah. and Coleridge and yes. uh, those yes. kind yes. of radical right. poets who right. posited individuality right. as a rule. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that was... I think that was still sort of circulating in the mid 70s in a way. Me and my friends we were just, I thought at the time, normal teenagers, we were reading, you know, William Blake and Keats and Yeats, And this was a normal part of our dialogue with each other was to talk about this stuff. But here's the thing, Geron would predicted that something would happen and that we would move into the world and start becoming affected by the judgments and the values and the boundaries of wherever we found ourselves. I found myself in academia. So you know better than I do, you're trained in literature and comparative literature. I mean, you know what that kind of training will do to a
1: text like this. Well, it actually takes an interesting... This text, of course, was never discussed at all in any literature department I was close to. It's actually kind of an embarrassment, and it's almost... (laughs) shameful to even acknowledge Khalil Gibran so, and the response yeah. usually from people to me said that was my father's favorite book but I've never read it. Right. It's a strange resistance and I'm interested yeah. in this resistance yes. so what, yes. has been, yes. like what we're trying to get to what is yeah. being resisted that in the 70s yeah. and in the yeah. 60s it resonated with countless people who yes. were probably trying to find their own path yes. and he says at some point about pleasure he says pleasure is a freedom song which sounds like yeah. the 60s to me and he right. says, but it is not freedom. Right. So he actually says yes. this path, yes. which yes. in you can say the 60s and the 70s, and then it gets commodified again. And then people get lulled into thinking, this promise you had, even that we will commodify for you.
2: Right, yes. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, what you call love is not love. What you call marriage is not marriage. You know, what you call a house is not a house, a place of comfort. It's something else. And maybe there is something in there about... You know, there is something anti-capitalist about the old romanticism. And maybe there's something about these things have been commodified in certain ways. You've been taught to think about them in certain ways and to desire them in certain ways. Clothing, love, marriage and all the rest. But think again and look again. I mean, He
1: warns um, us always against even taking this counterintuitive reconstruction. So he says, the what? house is not a house. And then he says, or oh, have you only comfort and a lust for comfort? that stealthy thing that enters the house a guest and then becomes a host and then a master. So even the counterintuitive flip that he does on all these concepts, he says, let me tell you what marriage really is, except it won't be satisfactory. It will not become the doctrine, the dogma to which you can now subscribe. It'll challenge you to think, I would say it's open-ended or it's not resolved. And I think that each little chapter ends with an unresolved or in the romantic way, often they end with an allegory or he switches in a literary where he goes from marriage is not this. And he says, who can silence the skylark? The lark. <laughs> says, You may not sing or you yeah. may sing, but the oceans will go on. So in some ways he switches yeah. and it's a metaphor, but it explains something. He says, we cannot contain our own thoughts. Yes. They don't yes. become the masters of ourselves. Yeah. I
2: and mean, it should be a message that you wonder why people bought this book. And you also wonder why academia is not interested in I'm it.
1: really interested in this. I yeah. think there's a lot to say about this is a book that resonates in America. It's written and published in America. It becomes the best-selling book for Knopf for almost 100 years now. So people are looking for something. And you, in your own experience, they couldn't find it in traditional institutions of education right. and learning. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's very odd to me. And I think part of it, the suspicion from academic is that they think this is a kitsch version of religion, right? It promises Mm -hmm. transcendence. It's a false, inauthentic sense of epiphany or revelation. It's not true. It's just metaphors. Whereas other poets make the cut and get included in the canon.
2: Right. Maybe you, the literature scholar, could say that you can understand to some extent how that might be the case just on the merits of the language itself. But you would think scholars would be interested in something more than that, the superficiality of that aesthetic. You know, that there's something else going on here that actually contravenes that very seemingly trite, platitudinous language. It's a message, like you said, is anti-establishment. It is even anti-dogmatic, like you just said.
1: Something about the aesthetics of the language, the beauty, that, you know, in the famous Keats poem, Ode to Aggression Urn," beauty is yeah. truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. That there's a suspicion, actually, I think, that the language is overwrought, yes. too metaphorical. Right. But at the same time, I go to, and this is Hal Bloom who reminds me, Virginia Woolf said, the only advice, indeed, that one person can give another about reading is to take no advice. <laughs> this, <laughs> right. adjust she, all literature departments, basically. Yeah.
2: Now, so this was how I read it as a young man. I read it free, removed from disciplinary values and so forth. I kind of received it intravenously, its message, of seek, don't accept the answers, figure this out, have a look. What is love? What do you experience? What's the range of it? Is it possible? Do you need to do it anyway? But slowly over time, and I think Al-Mustafa would predict this, we start becoming these subjugated individuals, subjugated by the institutions we find ourselves in. I found myself in higher education.
1: I want to ask you two things. So the other person who touched you in this way is Leonard Cohen, right? Yeah. A songwriter and poet. Yes, very much. And... There's something here. So Gibran warns us and says, what is word knowledge but a shadow of wordless knowledge? So he cautions us against book knowledge, learned, although he writes a little book. Leonard (laughs) Leonard Cohen touched you in the same way, and you found another way of making music and being a musician. That Maybe there's something here that the traditional ways of delivering knowledge to book knowledge, say, left you trying to seek something else.
2: Well, maybe that's part of that romantic impulse of really thinking that the very important thing in life is to find a way of of expressing, of finding what's in there and expressing it in some way. Maybe we have to return to some point about whether this becomes a kind of this feeds into kind of neoliberal political position where each person's on his own, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we need to discuss that. But
1: yeah. Say something about what would a book like this do to a neoliberal subject? If neoliberal, you said in one of your books, Noam Chomsky said, it's neither neo nor liberal.
2: Right. Well, I mean, a lot of people would argue that the reigning sort of ideological formation in America right now is, is something that we'd call neoliberalism, which always wants to say that the individual is vulnerable It's always in this insecure society, in this unknowable world, so our only hope is to find ways to create resilience, and that involves cultivating this tiny little inner sphere of individuality where we can steel ourselves against the world and find positivity and peace and go back into the world, this idea that the world itself is unchangeable. As Maggie Thatcher used to say, there is no alternative to capitalism, so find a way to function in it. And Francis you know,
1: Fukuyama's "At the End of History," who wrote right. a book entirely on Nietzsche, every chapter no. is an epigraph from Nietzsche, who warns that the invention of modern subjectivity and freedom, emancipation from dogma and doctrine, leads directly into small capitalist subjects who toil around and feel that the system can't be changed.
2: Right, exactly, that that's the key right there. That's why the end of history. This is it, and that's sort of the Tina, the T-I-N-A. There's an alternative doctrine you know, dogma is about is don't even try to change the world it's not going to change just try to find some inner peace or some insights, become mindful etc and function well in the world
1: yeah. isn't this sort of what consciousness is that we can become aware of our own condition and do we have the tools yes. to liberate yes. ourselves so he's
2: but but, but the idea and i think Gibran might be saying this is that consciousness isn't in me You know, my mind isn't in me, my emotions aren't in me, they're part of this larger collective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when I take that into account and I'm realistic and honest about that, I start to discover these kinds of desires that I want to be fulfilled in me, in my mind, my soul, my consciousness, are not going to be fulfilled that way because I'm in a world with other people who have other ideas about all of that. So there's something operating that is maybe kind of anti-romantic that says we are a collective. And that's what creates this complexity that I'm talking about regarding love and all the rest.
1: He says, say not, I have found the path of the soul, which would be you found redemption and release within yourself. Say rather, I have met the soul walking upon my path. Right. Which is a strange passive construction that you think you've met the soul walking upon my path as if you feel a sense of otherness within you, but not because you've created it through your romantic burst of self expression, but you're aware of something that there's an otherness, which I think why this book resonates with people that they have a sense of alienation of being estranged from ourselves, because that's what being secular means. And then they turn to religion, which promises them, Oh, there's transcendence beyond Gibran read, Plato, he read Nietzsche, he read Blake, he says, hmm. this is a quote, I heard the doctrines of Confucius, I lent an ear to Brahma, and sat near Buddha, unquote.
2: Oh, That's not in the prophet, though, is no, it? No, this
1: is not in the prophet, yeah. and it's kind yeah. of a nice quote, which also means, yes. he basically says, and this is why I work really well in America. I dipped You're into right. every <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the possible well of wisdom, and I gave you all a little part of it. I also, yeah. he played the part of the Exotic other. Right, um, yes. Well, and I think he was marketed in this way, which yes. uh, is, yes. that's an American way of doing it as well.
2: Right, sure. And also, it's self-cultivated, right? Uh, he also is self cultivated, right? We saw the image of the prophet and he, that the cover of the book and the kind of exotic, you know. I've never man.
1: thought it's a problem if people read the right books for the wrong reasons. They're still reading the right books. So. If yes, people read the right books up, for the wrong for the reasons, wrong
2: reasons right. the
1: right books. <laughs> so Liam Neeson and Salma Hayek now made a movie about this. So good for them. Uh, yeah, that's
2: been popping up. I haven't seen it, but I'm curious about it now. It's
1: actually an animated movie and it mixes his life and the story of the prophet. But to go back to this question, does this book ultimately it moved you when you were young and then you yeah. abandoned it. And did you think then, oh, it's too, it gives me, not enough of the tools of resistance. It allows me just to accommodate. But in a funny way, you just didn't read it then for some few yeah. decades.
2: I think I just started to absorb the prejudices and the values of the institution I found myself in, which is, again, something Al-Mustafa was trying to teach me and which I really hate admitting because I think I'm resistant to that. Everything I think and believe is that I'm able to resist the capture of the institutions I find myself but I think this is a very interesting exercise that we're doing right now because it's proving
1: to me otherwise. And I wonder what the institution's investment is. There is no institution, it's people in the institutions thinking and doing things. Why do they resist this? Why don't they even just take a little peek and say millions of people read this book, I might as well read it. Well, isn't it because academics and humanities
2: The arts and humanities. I had an art friend who would always invite philosophy, people he thought were philosophically sophisticated over, to come talk about his art. And he'd listen in because in art, you always have to say serious things about your art. And I'd always say to him, just show your art. You don't have to say serious things about it. But that's an imperative in academia is that you have to be serious. And there's something about this book, The Prophet, that is almost in your face resisting that move. I mean, really, I'll just read it again. When you work, you are a flute through whose heart the whispering of the hours turns to music. I'm sure he could have come up with more serious language in that. In fact, I've heard, I don't know this, but I've heard that his Arabic poetry and literature is much more what we would call academically, philosophically serious,
1: it's interesting, so, in the Arab world, he's considered a literary revolutionary. He brought this English renaissance of romanticism into Arab literature. He wrote, I think, at least 17 books, nine in Arabic, eight in English. Incredible. And then he had a, an English editor, Mary Haskell, a woman who supported yes. him greatly, who was right. very, very American in a sense, a very clear-eyed, I think, of what he meant to her, an enormous amount, personally. And she also saw the potential of this book. So she was probably someone who helped him. But we've had great writers who find their way. And I think academia is not skeptical so much about the language because, frankly, a lot of people discuss books without even ever looking at a sentence. I think academia is very worried when there is this promise of transcendence and somehow it's too easily accessible. It's Nietzsche, the philosopher who influenced him, he criticized Wagner. The composer, not because of Wagner's anti-Semitism and Wagner's bombast, but because Wagner gave us a cheap version of transcendence. He said it was too easy to get there. There was Mm. no work. (laughs) Baudelaire at some point warns us against drugs because he says it's a shortcut to feeling greater than ourselves. And he says we have to do the work. Wait, who does that? I Baudelaire, the... Baudelaire says, oh, right. that drugs yeah. give us a sense of transcendence, of saying being yeah. in touch with the cosmos or the unitary harmony of the world. So these philosophers are skeptical and get very worried. And Nietzsche is an interesting case because Nietzsche, like you were infatuated with Gibran, as a young man, Nietzsche was infatuated, obsessed with Wagner. And yes. then turns on Wagner and says, and Wagner is still the most important thing in my life. That's why I have to fight it so much. Yes, yeah.
2: Yes. What's interesting about Gibran and and what you just said is, he seems to be presenting a very easy way to transcendence, right? But actually, he will resist that. Yes. Again, that should be interesting to people who think about certain issues in philosophy or literature. What other disciplines might be interested in this text? I'm not sure. Maybe that's it. English, comparative literature, philosophy, where does it even belong? One of the criticisms I've heard of Gibran in the Arab world is that he didn't quite live up to the standards of very ornate, complex, you know, Arabian poetry, traditional poetry. So even there, some people scoff at him.
1: Well, it's interesting because he didn't have the traditional schooling. He couldn't really probably have learned all the forms that take a long time to acquire for gifted poets. So he wrote poems that were a bit influenced by French and American writings. So he's actually also a really interesting example of someone who doesn't fit into a national canon. Right. Yes. So yeah. yes. I'm reading this and some people say this was written in Arabic. Some people say it was written in English. No one really knows. So he's a right. really completely yeah. modern subject. Yes. who's Trying to find meaning in a world that has been radically secularized. It right. Has many yeah. traditions and takes, and he gives it the name, the prophet. Which right is scandalous in some religious traditions. Sure. So I think by taking these different things and finding something that would be the human condition, I think that's also surprisingly unsettling for people because they can't properly put him into any national anthology. Right. That's,
2: I think, another reason why, when I reflect back, that the text was interesting to me and why it is interesting to me once again is it it does resist all of those kinds of boundaries and disciplines and fields and structures. I mean, some of them are resonant in it, but as a whole, no discipline or field or even national literature would accept this text or this person into it, which again is to me interesting. That's another notion of this idea of the real is that it presents aspects of human life That are generally disavowed precisely because they threaten to rip apart our, you know, our constructions of meaning and value, and maybe there's an element of that happening here too. It it just doesn't.
1: And I think what you're saying is this: this idea of the real, which blows apart. The way we institutionalize meaning and we institutionalize knowledge, even yeah. in fields of philosophy which will talk endlessly about that there is no meaning, but nonetheless institutionalize this and in publish which is fine that 's how human beings function and I think Gibran is totally aware of this where he talks about the market and commerce he's not he knows that society is organized, but you're saying this this is an explosive radical and subversive potential of the text, which is not just a nice bromide to read at a bar mitzvah or at a baptism or a confirmation or a wedding or a funeral. This is actually a much more troubling. So there's something barbed in this text. Nice.
2: I like that. And that's what's so strange is that's, again, I wonder if half the time anyone's actually listening to the message because they're hearing the language and it sounds beautiful and positive and transcendent and, it delivers, like you just said, this barbed message within that. I think
1: as a teacher, this first quote I read that, don't trust me as a teacher, basically, I haven't found the truth for you, and I will just lead you to the threshold of your own mind. I think that is actually very radical. Yes. And I wonder whether people, as you say, they may not listen to it, but they may get something here. Let's say this is going to open you to something, and what you do with it which may be this problematic neoliberal individualism but may also say i'm opening up to something that all of us are concerned with right we that, want meaning yes. we have desires and we happen to be in the world in yes. a material way
2: with others who want different meanings and, and have other desires
1: and who are differently uh, in the world also
2: <laughs> right exactly that's what i mean about looking back on the book it really sort of twisted my head around because it I've totally forgot about that that subversive, anti-dogmatic, anti-authoritarian message that you just described. I'm going to think more about it. I'm going to read it further. Maybe I'll even write something about it. I don't know. It's a strange book.
1: Well, it's interesting because you've done a lot of work on Western conceptions of the East. And this is one of those books from Schopenhauer, Emerson, Thoreau. Everybody's tapping into the East. Rilke, Ezra Pound, people like that to no, sort of activate that's something. What I mean. Yeah. To activate something, and you said there's sometimes the promise that there's no dogma, no doctrine, no ideology, but that covers over a lot of times that actually, of course, these things are socially constructed. I wonder whether actually we would expect too much of a book to say uh, Gibran has to give us both. He has to give us this idea that there's something deeper in us and keep it utterly free from his time and be timeless. But it's it's an odd book. Because I cannot think of another book that has lasted for something like a century Yeah. Yes. somehow has done something for people, and I don't think it satisfies them, but I think it activates something.
2: Yeah, that's something to, to explore, isn't it? Like, for academic types, who people think sophisticated manner or only read sophisticated literature, there's something about this text that's off-putting. Right.
1: The response is a little bit of derision and condescension. I've Absolutely. read a couple articles, and they're a little bit mean also about him as a person. And yes. it's it's a funny double gesture to say, oh, we shouldn't use biography as a key. And then they go and give us a sketch of the biography and say he was a, he was actually, interestingly, wanted to be a writer, a serious writer. And he wrote quite a lot and he was very respected, especially in the Arab world. But his fame and money didn't really do anything for him. There's a very strange after story. No. Yes. He died poor. He didn't really change no. his lifestyle. died very young. 1931, probably of tuberculosis, and he had probably a drinking problem as well. Then he gives all the royalties from this book to his village where he was born. This devastates this village in a way because it's way too much money coming in too quickly, and there's a lawsuit, and in the 60s already – they're getting $300,000 a year, which is an enormous amount. And they have to actually regulate this. There's corruption. There's supposedly two murders. So there's a strange way in which this book has real material effects in the world.
2: Yeah, that is interesting. It's, yeah. I heard that he started getting profits from I – mean, <laughs> no pun intended. He started getting profits from the book. He didn't get a new apartment. He didn't get new clothes. <laughs> no,
1: he <laughs> stayed in his little apartment. He yeah. loved his sister, but that's it. And That's also part of it, which is just embarrassing. I think the resentment by people against a bestseller. Yeah,
2: it's, that's part of the rhetoric, right? If, if the hoi polloi love it and buy it, then it must not be serious in some way or important, that, right? That's
1: right. And there's and yeah. some things. There are, you know, there are other books that give us something like this. I think all of Stephen King gives
2: mm-hmm. us, and the, he struggles against that as well, and, right? He's one of the most successful adaptation. writers
1: of all time. Yeah. I actually think Stephen King gives us the negative version of transcendence and say the world is inhabited by nothing. It's material except there's an evil in it that we cannot comprehend. So it's Christianity turned on its head, especially for people who have no way out, but they can touch transcendence. It always happens to be evil. (laughs) But again,
2: he's somewhat derided in so-called serious circles, not because of that message, but because of the way it's
1: delivered. Absolutely. And I'm interested in if people crave this. If they go and watch Star Wars and they read Joseph Campbell and they read Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, which is also a book that isn't entirely accepted in the academy, really not taught. But people crave this. Why wouldn't universities and teachers say, this is the first book I'm going to assign? Now, is this the transcendence or the meaning making? What is the this here? I think this is the this to be in touch with... But a transcendence that isn't a religious dogma, right. that isn't actually located outside ourselves, right. but also right. doesn't promise yes. Yes. the easy palliative, nice version of emptiness that says, "Oh, it's the cosmos within me." But say there's also finitude, death, destruction, annihilation,
2: uh, and others. And, and maybe think, that the, the yes. limit of the transcendence here, right?
1: Right. Right.
2: Let me read this. I don't know. This is interesting. I came across this when I was just reading up on The Prophet, and it's. Uh, you may have seen it as well. It's the Chicago Post review of the Penguin edition, and I could not for the life of me figure out if this is, like, current or if this is from, like, 1928 this or something. This is the
1: one positive review. I want to hear this. It's incredible. I it want to says, hear this review. This is the one positive review this book I, got. Do you have any idea when it's from? This is directly after he published it.
2: Okay, okay. It so it says... If there is a man or woman who can read this book without quiet acceptance of a great man's philosophy and a singing heart as of music born within, that man or woman is indeed dead to life and truth. And the funny thing is, when I first read that, I thought it was like it's current because right at the bottom of the Penguin page for a new edition of the book, and I thought, and I thought this cannot be.
1: <laughs> no, this is the one positive review he get. But I like this idea that they say a reader who's not touched is dead to the world. This reminds me of the Franz Kafka who lives at the same time, 1923. Kafka dies in 1926, 1925 maybe. Kafka says literature is the axe to break the frozen sea inside us. Literature is the axe to break the frozen sea to make us come alive. Because what's weird, we are not alive in the world. And this is what you've talked a lot about, this concept of awakening, of being uh, uh, awakened to the world. So this review says, it. who will not be touched by this? It's sort of actually an interesting challenge. If you're not touched by this, you're an academic. I mean, you're dead to the world.
2: <laughs> yeah, where academia is supposed to be the very place that articulates just what the world is for us.
1: Right. I, I'll read you a sentence, the, the one sentence that Gibran wrote for the third installment, which he never finished, called The Death of the Prophet, where he returns to the city of Orpheles, And then he writes this one sentence, which is the only surviving sentence. And he shall return to the city of Orpheles, and they shall stone him in the marketplace, even unto death. And he shall call every stone a blessed name. Hmm. This is straight out of Nietzsche. Yeah. Where the yeah. prophet comes from the mountain and says, God is dead, and they stone him, and, but he tells the truth. Right. And yes. in some strange way, it's if Gibran prefigured the fate of his book that people will dismiss this entirely and he will rejoice because, of course, they couldn't see their own truth.
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. Yes, yes. This idea of prefiguration in the book. The prophet, too, maybe he's, he's you know, prophets are telling something about the future, right? Maybe the future is not so Has not not
1: come. Well, or that the future is, the rejection of this book is a rejection of yourself.
2: Yeah, interesting.
1: This is an interesting question. When you said you read it as a young man, it changed, it set you on a path to do a lot of other things. You've written a lot of books, The Life of the Buddha, you translate Dhammapada, you know, the entire literature of this. You've also turned and said there's a problem with the way this has been assimilated, absorbed, defanged. Right. But it's interesting to say, if you don't get this book, you don't get yourself.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think what he's saying about all of these everyday, these very quotidian matters, even clothing, have elements of a human truth in them. And it has something to do with expanding this continuum beyond what our positivity ideology permits, and just open it up, and he's asking you to have a look about how it really is, which is also a very Buddhist notion. See things as they are, not as we fantasize them to be.
1: And that would add not just the positive ideology, say neoliberal consumerism, which Marcuse criticizes, we just buy stuff. It's also that the ideologies of skepticism, so Freud, Darwin, Marx, they don't satisfy Americans in a way. We've never become people totally subscribed to these ideas. They're European constructions of how to make sense of a secular world. But Americans look for something else, how to be grounded, how to find our bearing. This is Thoreau, Emerson, Dickinson, Whitman. Mm-hmm. So there's a search for being real to yourself in this country, which has this fraud history. And the European either the positive, which is capitalism, or the negative, the critique of that, none of those are really satisfactory. In this text. In this text or in general, that's why I think it resonates with Americans so much because this is the country where a lot of people have their private religion. A lot of people have conversations with Jesus or their own God every single day. It's a very interesting place in that way why this book was written here and resonates here first.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's something about this book that... In a weird way, even though it has elements of pessimism, it's something very life affirming about it, but not in an easy kind of necessarily joyous way, but life affirming in that this recognition of just the mixture of qualities in life and the ever present mixture of qualities and love and marriage and all the rest life-affirming in that way, life as it is, you know.
1: So it's not maximizing wellness and happiness and positive outcomes, which is just a way to...
2: And it's not negating them either, and it's not valorizing the negation, you know, of saying that that's all just fantasy and, and lie to get you to buy the commodity and the diamond ring and all that for... You know, and have the expensive wedding and believe in the myth. Right. It's life affirming in, in the way that it seems to be asking to take a good, clear eyed view of what's going on. Again, it's interesting, and we could talk about this endlessly, but that it's delivered in a kind of language that makes it difficult language seems to be suggesting just the opposite. And that's something just interminably weird about the book. And I
1: think this is where he takes his inspiration from romantic poetry, which deals in contradiction, which deals in irony, not on a silly level, but actually saying two things at once and saying a thing that opposes each I'll end with this quote right here. This is a kind of sobering one.
3: And behold i have found that which is greater than wisdom it is a flame spirit in you ever gathering more of itself while you heedless of its expansion bewail the withering of your days it is life in quest of life in bodies that fear the grave
1: life in quest of life in bodies that fear the grave that fear the grave And it's you heedless of the expansion, of its expansion, of the flame spirit. Bewail the withering of your days. So while we're crying that things are going to be over, things pass, we can't hold on to the moment, we can't live in the eternal present, he says, life is actually burning at that moment in us.
2: Yeah, if there's a transcendence here, it might be a kind of romantic transcendence that that life is the thing that is coursing through us. You know, like your children are not your children. Your children belong to life and so forth. And if there's a transcendence, that's it. But that should not be very consoling because of the mixture of pain with pleasure and failure with love, et cetera, that he keeps reminding us of.
1: I give you a little consoling quote from Virginia Wolfland, since you kind of you know betrayed I mean, your betrayed is. your own youthful enthusiasm. So it, Virginia Woolf, and she talks to it. in the second common reader, she talks about reading and she says. There's always a demon in us who whispers, I hate, I love, and we cannot silence him. So in reading, <laughs> So the little yeah. I hate demon won over for a while, and then you can go back to the I love demon. But she said, there'll always be that, de- that voice in your head that doesn't trust its own surrender.
2: Yes, because you almost said it because it doesn't want to be seduced, it's seduced it's right? to the goods, which is, I think, if that's happening in relation to text, I think that's a good, healthy text for you to have in your life.
1: I think so too and I think to have in your life and to be aware and to be seduced and then get over that the way we go through life actually because yeah. we do love things and then we unlove them and then we love them again
2: that's what K- Kivler Gibran taught us
1: <laughs> that's right, alright thank you so much
2: All right, I'm I enjoyed it